Okay, everybody, let us get started, shall we? Welcome. If this is your first time especially, we're glad you're here. As always, the food is free. Less of a cost. What happened to that? No, I'm just kidding. Yes, before anybody asks, I do have a black eye. I realize that it's getting a nice shot for the camera. <laughs> Most of you know I teach martial arts to local refugee kids as part of my ministry for Disciple Dojo. So my student, who is a 15-year-old Afghan refugee teenager, gave me this. <laughs> I gave him a promotion. Yes, leave me alone. So, <laughs> so he, uh, yeah, it's a job has you know, it's part of it. But I get nice eyeshadow for a few days. I want to do, I haven't done this in a while, and I realized it, and I need to, because closed mouths don't get fit. But, um, so Disciple Dojo, this ministry, besides doing this teaching and, and putting it on video and podcast each week, uh, we also have a number of resources that my goal in creating these resources is to kind of replicate some of what we do in here in churches and small groups all over. And so there's, there's courses that I've taught and put together and edited as DVD curriculum. So there's one that we spend the whole, um, the whole course is just looking at how does the Bible and science work together? Or do they work together? What do we do with Genesis 1, evolution and creation and dinosaur museums and all this other stuff that you see going on? So there's a DVD that makes sense of that. Um, there's one that I teach, kind of the flagship course of Disciple Dojo, which is called Bible for the Rest of Us. It's basic. How do I read the Bible in a way that makes it not weird, intimidating, or <coughs> that helps me understand what I'm reading? And we talk about like genres, we talk about translations, and we talk about big picture theology. Um, so again, this is a whole small group DVD course. And then there's one that I do, my focus in the New Testament is the Revelation and um, the DVD I do is called Revelation, a guided tour of the apocalypse. And we go through the book of Revelation. And we actually, what's different from this study than popular Revelation studies is we don't go through it and say, what is this telling us about today? We go through and say, what did this, what did Revelation say to the first readers? Because that's kind of what matters in Bible study. And then, how might that apply today? So this is a course that I really enjoy teaching. Um, then for those of you that are audio, you, you commute, you want something to listen to in the car, I have this whole course called Apocalypse Now, What the Bible Teaches About the End Times. So this is dealing with all these things you hear about, like raptures and millenniums and um, pre-tribulation and you know, prophecy and Daniel and those chain emails you get from well-meaning relatives that try to scare you about the newest dictator in the Middle East. Um, this goes into detail, 10 sessions, each one's about 70 minutes long, so it's over 10 hours of study uh, available audio. And then lastly, I've got two books that I've written. One is, uh, this one's the companion to this course. It's called You Want to Be Left Behind. And it's a look at what Jesus actually said when we talked about that whole left behind thing. And the title makes it clear. According to Jesus, you don't want to be taken in Matthew 24. You want to be left like Noah and his family were. So that's um, a book that I put out. And then my first book ever was called Cleansed and Abiding, Closed View. Of holiness, and this is a look at Christian sanctification, perfection, holiness, and when Jesus said, "Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect." What does he mean? So let's look at that. Anyway, I always say that one uh, because I haven't mentioned it in a while, and a lot of you come and may not even know. They're all available for sale, and this is kind of how I fund this. You know, we don't none of the donations for the food here that goes to the people in the kitchen 
the ladies that bring this food out. So we ask you to tip what you think it's worth, and it all goes straight to them. Uh, so to kind of supplement the teaching ministry of Disciple Dojo, I've put together these resources. I'm working on right now, you guys can be aware for this, I'm trying to find an editor because I have four weeks worth of teaching called uh, To Know and Be Known, What the Bible Teaches, or Forming a Thoughtful Biblical Sexual Ethic. And it's a look at what the Bible teaches about everything regarding sex, marriage, divorce, same-sex relationships, transgender, all that kind of stuff that our whole society is just going bananas over right now. So I've got like eight hours, ten hours worth of teaching. I just don't have any editing ability. So I need somebody that can edit it into a DVD, smarter curriculum for me, and then that will be released as the next one. So if you guys definitely can pray for that, and also if you have connections that would like to. I, I, I priced out a professional editor, and it's like far beyond my budget uh, as a one-man show. So um, I'm looking for someone that would kind of partner with me and say, hey, I'll provide the content, and you help me edit it, and then we release it to the church. So anyway, there's your infomercial. Shameless plug, over. Let's get into Leviticus, which is the purpose of this study. We're in a turning point. So we've been studying Leviticus all year. We spent a year, and nobody ever does that. Christians don't do that with Leviticus. They don't do it with the Old Testament. Give me Ephesians, give me Corinthians, give me some John, and uh, maybe a few passages from Psalms. But what we've been doing is saying, no, Leviticus is the heart of the Torah. It's the middle book of the first five books. And for Jesus, that was the Bible. The Old Testament was the Bible. Jesus didn't have a New Testament. Paul didn't have a New Testament. Peter didn't have a New Testament. In fact, for 300 years, no Christian had what we know of as a New Testament. So when they go and preach in synagogues and they preach in the marketplace and they proclaim the gospel, they weren't taking people down the Romans road. They were reading from Leviticus. They were reading from Exodus. They were reading from the Psalms. They were reading from Isaiah. So that's why in this study we do that because the goal is to walk us together through these books of the Bible to get the big picture. Because verses here and there, one, we, we've all said, and so if you've been coming to this for more than a month, you know, Bible verses are an invention of modern printing. They were not in the original. Verses and chapter numbers were not in the original. Those are Middle Ages and later. So what for, for centuries, for millennia, what God's people had were these books. And these books told stories, and they told a big story with a capital X. And God's people knew where they were in the world by locating where they are in the story. And so they had this, this trans-canonical view, this view from Genesis to Revelation of this is what's going on in the world. This is what God's doing in the world. This is where I am in this big story. So where we are, what we come to today is a culture that is biblically illiterate and a church culture that is biblically illiterate in a lot of ways because we're taught memory verses and we're taught passages and daily devotionals. But nobody did it that way in the history of God's people up until modern times. It was... They knew the words to the, to the books because they heard them every week in the synagogue. They knew the words in the books because they read them every week when they gathered together. And it wasn't like it, 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 it wasn't as much inductive, or uh, I don't even know, like the, the life application Bible study. Like read a passage, what does this mean to me? It was read the passage, what does this say? And what does this mean there? And then after that, you ask, now, how does this shape my life? So that's what we do in the study. Is, is those of you who've been here, some of you have been here from the beginning, from Genesis 1, and we're in Leviticus 17. We've walked through chapter by chapter and said, this is the grand narrative of God's story. This is what he's doing in the world, and it's here in this library that we call the Bible. 
And so in this book of the library that we're in now is Leviticus. And Leviticus is all about, it's, it's like we've said, it's the instruction manual that God gave his people at Mount Sinai for how to operate this thing called the tabernacle and the covenant. Because when God brought them out of Egypt, he brought them out of slavery from Pharaoh, not to set them free, but to bring them under slavery to God. Because paradoxically, that's the only way that there is freedom. Everybody, whether it's Bob Dylan, everybody's got to serve somebody. Somebody a little, my generation above me, you can tell if that's right or not. Um, but was, everybody's got to serve somebody. We are made to serve, we're built to serve, we're created to worship. The thing that gets people get wrong is they worship and they serve the wrong thing. Because right. there's only one that's worthy of that worship. There's only one that we were created to worship, and that's the God who's worthy of worship and the only being in all of existence that will not uh, in some way twist, distort, or take advantage of that worship for their, for their own good at the expense of the worship. Every other force, every other being, every other person, every other entity in all of the universe that people worship including ourselves, will twist and will skew and will take advantage of and will, will manipulate and um, is not worthy of worship. So what God has brought Israel out of Egypt says you're going to worship me. And the way you're going to worship me is through this, this, this mobile home. God's, God's original trailer park was the tower. It was literally a mobile home and it was his home. Like it was the, like, there's double wide, and then there's like Yahweh wide. Like that's what this was. This was the the trailer of all trailers. It was it was a mobile home. It was God's mobile home. It was like taking Mount Sinai, this mountain that He He came down to meet His people on. He dwelled at the top in unapproachable splendor, smoke and fire and thunder and all of that. Nobody could go up there except Moses, but only at God's invitation. And then down the mountain a little bit further. The elders of Israel could gather, and they could have a meal in the presence of the shadow of the feet of God. And then further down the mountain, the people of Israel were camped at the base, and they could approach, but they could only approach to a certain um, proximity. And there were borders that God said, don't touch them, don't let them come any closer. Why? For their protection. Because he said back in Exodus, my holiness will break out and will consume them if they come up the mountain. And what was going on is God is illustrating to his people that he's holy. And holiness means unapproachability. It means, it means complete purity. It means um, consuming fire. That's the image that God's used all through Exodus and all through Leviticus for his holiness is consuming fire. Not what you can't do. Dancing and smoking and cussing and card playing and all that foolishness that we confuse with holiness. That's not holiness. Holiness is the blast furnace of God's purity coming in contact with the unprotected sinful frailty of human beings. And so God knows that if those things meet, one of them won't survive. And he wants to dwell amidst his people. He wants his people to survive. So what he does is he creates the ultimate hazmat suit. He creates the ultimate nuclear containment facility. He creates the tabernacle and the system of sacrifices whereby through the one thing in the universe that can shield someone and cleanse someone, people can approach him. And that one thing is the blood of the innocent. So through the blood of the innocent, people are able to approach someone in a roundabout way, this holy God that dwells among them in this portable Mount Sinai, 
created with a series of curtains and posts and altars. So he gives them all that. And the first 17 chapters of Leviticus were setting up the priestly rules and how the worship's going to work. Because God says, you've got to all, in the book of Romans 1, we'll talk about this, all sin, all sin arises from messed up or skewed worship. All sin originates from idolatry in some way, shape, or form. Any sin you can imagine comes from, trickles down from a prior act of idolatry whereby something else is put in the place of God. Whether it's ourself, our desire, whether it's another God, whether it's an ideal, an ideology that we subscribe to, whether it's a political party, whether it's our national patriotic duty, whether it's any of these things that vie for our loyalties, all sin comes from. And in the intertestamental time, the book called The Wisdom of Solomon, if you're Catholic, it's in your Apocrypha, but it's a writing of Jews during the time between the Testaments. In the Wisdom of Solomon, there's a whole chapter that talks about this. And then Paul echoes that very chapter in Solomon in his dialogue in Romans 1 that explains how humanity got so simple. And it all stems back from idolatry, from putting something in the place of God and choosing to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, even when that creature is us. So what God does in these first chapters is he says, worship is to come first. Who I am and an understanding of me has to be the foundation upon which you build your ethic. All of your ethics should flow from who I am. And then you'll get it right. If your ethics are built upon what you think is right in order to try to get to me, then you're going to get it wrong. And that's what every religious system and every idolatry in the world has done. So God gives them 17 or 16 chapters of here's how worship looks in Israel. Then in chapter 17 of Leviticus, which is short, that's why I'm taking so much time setting it up, this is a hinge chapter because it, it looks back to what we've come from in terms of uh, things like cleanliness and sacrifice and the importance of blood. And then it looks forward to how Israel is going to live outside of the temple area, the tabernacle area, how they're going to live in their daily life. And the rest of Leviticus and the rest of the book is going to be focused on, hey Israel, now that you know what it's like to worship me, here's what it's like to live among people who don't worship me. And here's what it's like to be holy. And holiness means being different. So for the next three chapters, or more than three chapters, Leviticus 18 through 20, I don't know, give or take 20, um, that section in Leviticus is known as the holiness code because it's going to start and it's going to ground everything about how Israel acts outside the temple and in the tabernacle. It's going to ground it in the phrase, the refrain that you'll hear, be holy for I am holy. And it's what Peter quotes in his letter to the believers in the early church. When he's telling them about ethical behavior, he's talking to Gentiles. He uses Israel's scripture and says, hey, remember your scripture. Be holy for the Lord your God is holy. Applying the identity of Israel in the old covenant to these new believing Gentiles in the new covenant. Scandalous. Some people would even bristle at that. They would think, oh, you're replacing the Jews with the church. And no, no, no. The church is the continuation of Israel, not its replacement. And so Peter can cite from Leviticus, Paul can cite from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy. Jesus grounds everything that he does in calling back to Torah, 
calling people back to what was written in the beginning, as opposed to the traditions that people had created afterwards. So when we come to 17, we're coming to a series of uh, commandments that God's going to give the people that bridge the gap between worship and pastoral agricultural life, because they were an agrarian society. They were, at this point, camped around the base of Mount Sinai, on their way into the land of Canaan, but there would be some time before they got there, and they were agrarian. They were herdsmen. They were shepherds. And so their livelihood consisted of livestock, and livestock were used for transportation. They were the trucks of the ancient world. They were currency. They were the money of the ancient world. They were the dairies of the ancient world. It's where you got your milk. It's how you made your cheeses. It's how you did all that stuff. Um, they were the clothing supply of the ancient world. It's where you got your leather. It's where you got your goods for everything from the water skins that you drink from to keep you alive in the desert to the sandals that you wear on your feet to keep your feet from being busted on the rocks. This is what their animals provided them. And lastly, they were a source of food. They were your nourishment. They were how you got your protein in a wilderness region that was dry and deserty. So the animals provided all of that. So when we look at this chapter, what God's talking, the first thing he starts talking to them about after this, what we saw last week, this one day a year, the only day of the year when all of the sins of Israel could be atoned for, the only day. After that, then, he says, now, speaking of atonement, speaking of making things right, here's how you're going to be. It's going to be different from the people that you live among. So verse 1, chapter 17. So the Lord said to Moses, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the Israelites and say to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Any Israelite who sacrifices an ox, a lamb, or a goat in the camp or outside of it, instead of bringing it to the entrance to the tent of meeting to present it as an offering to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, that man shall be considered guilty of bloodshed. He has shed blood and must be cut off from his people. This is so the Israelites will bring the Lord to the Lord sacrifices they are now making in the open fields. They must bring them to the priest, that is, to the Lord, at the entrance of the tent of meeting and sacrifice them as fellowship offerings. Now, right there, there's a pause. If you have a different translation in the NIV, you may see a word back in verse 3. Any Israelite who, it may say slaughter rather than sacrifice. NIV says sacrifice. This is not the word sacrifice. This is where the NIV has made an interpretation. It's not a wrong interpretation, but it is an interpretation. The word there is sacrifice, excuse me, is slaughter. And it's a word that means um, uh, shahat. If you want a cool, fun Hebrew word to say shahat, to slaughter. And it can mean to slaughter for food. Usually it means to ritually slaughter as a sacrifice. And the reason that the NIV translate this as sacrifice, unlike other translations, is because they realize the three types of animals that it's talking about being slaughtered are the sacrificial animals that are listed, the livestock, the oxen. These are, these are the quadrupeds that you would sacrifice on the altar. So the NIV translators said this is talking about sacrifice, not just any animal that you slaughter for food. Why is that important? Because in Deuteronomy 12, God's going to go and say, Israel, you're allowed to slaughter your meat anywhere when you get into the land. You don't have to bring, in other words, every time you want meat, you don't have to kill it and bring it to the central tabernacle in Jerusalem. Because that won't work if you live in Beersheba, or if you live up in the Golan Heights, or if you live down near the Mediterranean. It's a few days' journey to take it back to your family. So there's, there's uh, some scholars that said, oh, this is prohibiting slaughter of animals anywhere other than the tabernacle. 
And Deuteronomy says you can slaughter animals anywhere you want to. So that means that these must have been originally two different sources that a redactor has woven together. But we can see the contradiction, so we know that originally this was not one cohesive unit. And I, I just think that's cool. I think it's just a, a lazy way of making sense of what the text is saying. This text is talking about sacrifice slaughter, not just everyday butchery that you would do when you eat. And the reason that God can command this, even if it were talking about the killing of any animal, the reason that he can command it in Leviticus is because in Leviticus the people are all camped out around the tabernacle. So no matter where they are, they can bring their meat to the tabernacle just by walking at most a few hours. So later when they get into the land, then if this is talking about any kind of slaughter, then it makes sense that God would lift the prohibition and would say, hey, Deuteronomy is going to clarify, when you get into the land, after this wilderness period that you've been wandering for 40 years, now that you're going into this land and you're going to spread out, now you don't have to bring all your meat to the central tabernacle in order to so even if it is talking about slaughter of any animal, there's no contradiction. Um, what God's saying in this, he says it explicitly, he says, this is, uh, you've got to bring your offering. If you're going to sacrifice an animal, I've just spent 16 chapters telling you what sacrifices are all about. So you're not going to go off and just do it wherever you want. You're not going to go, well, I want to sacrifice this animal on this high place, because this is a prettier scene than at the noisy tabernacle with all the bleeding and the sheep crying out and the people and the crowds. You know, when I'm out in nature by myself, it's just me and God and I feel his presence. And so I can, who needs to go to a church gathering? I can worship God in nature. Leviticus says, no, you can't. No, you can't. Leviticus says, you worship God in the vicinity through the system that he has set up. Because did you see what it says? When you bring your offering to the priest, that is to the Lord. So it's the ultimate insult for God to say to God, I don't need your people or your community to worship you because me and you got our own thing going on the golf course or when I go fishing or when I'm hiking in the woods. Now, can you pray to God when you're Yes. Jonah prayed in the belly of the fish. Jesus prayed in the wilderness for 40 days. Can you commune with God in the wilderness? Yes. Can you be a part of of God and corporately worship Him by yourself in the wilderness? No. It's a communal thing. God doesn't save individuals. He saves people in community with other people. So the Israelites, this is the first thing that God's telling them is, look, when you, when you slaughter these animals, if you're going to slaughter it for meat, that's one thing. But if you're going to say, this is my sacrifice, this is my communal offering of well-being that we have read about earlier, and it's going to be enjoyed by my family. This is my Hebrew Thanksgiving, so to speak. If you're going to do that, you do it in the avenue that God has set, not out wherever you want. And he goes on to say why. Uh, verse 6, the priest is to sprinkle the blood against the altar at the tent, uh, altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and burn the fat as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Everything we've read about the whole book so far. They must, here's the key, they must no longer offer any of their sacrifices to the Sarahim, translated in the NIV as goat idols, it's translated in some translations as goat demons. I think the King James or others may translate it as satyrs. It's this, it, it's the word literally means male goat. 
and it says they must no longer offer their sacrifices to the male goats whom they prostitute themselves. This is to be a lasting ordinance for them and for the generations to come. So what's that talking about? Well, at, in, in Lower Egypt, which is from where Israel came from, there were cults that worshipped all of the forces in all the world. The Nile was a god, you know, the sun was a god, the moon was a god, everything's a god. Well, if you're a herdsman, if you're a livestock, if you, if you pasture your flocks in these arid regions, then the belief arose that these arid regions are inhabited by these supernatural beings, these spirits, the spirit of your livestock, the spirit of fertility. The whole thing that's summarized by, like we saw last week, this term of Azazel, this, this supernatural evil out in the wilderness. And so what Israel would do is at this point they were, they were being tempted to syncretism. Syncretism is I'm going to go to the uh, tabernacle on Saturday and worship. But then every day when I'm out in the fields, just to hedge my bets, I may do a little offering to these spirits out here. Just so my pop clock that I'm pastoring out here will be protected. That's idolatry. That's not trusting God to provide for the welfare of your livelihood. And so what God says is you're not going to do that. You're not going to do And the fertility gods, these goat idols, these goat demons, these Sarahim, satyrs, whatever they were, they pop up all throughout the region. I mean, even like, you know, Greek mythology, Pan, the guy who plays the flute, he's got goat legs and a tail. Um, it's what kind of spun off into the images of Satan that were popular in the Middle East. You know, like the devil doesn't have cloven hooves and a pointy tail. But that comes from this notion of this pan, fertility, goat, demon, evil spirit. It all gets mashed together into this pop theology that says you got to do some sacrifices to the things in the wilderness that are scary if you want your animals to survive. And you got to do stuff that will bring fertility if you want your crops and your animals to be fertile. And that would even include bestiality. There would be where a woman who was considered like a holy woman would be offered to a male goat. And that act would be somehow seen to, to generate a fertility or get the gods fired up and get them wanting to be involved in the fertility of people. And it was just this weird mixture of sexuality and spirituality. And it permeated everything around Israel. So there's no coincidence that the next chapter in Leviticus next week is the sex chapter. If you want to read everything about sex in Leviticus, come next week. You're going to see what the nations around Israel did and what God told them. This is what you're not going to do. Because sex and worship were intricately woven together. So he goes on then in this. He says, you're not going to do that. And this is to be a lasting ordinance for them for the generations to come. You're not going to commit syncretism. You're not going to take a little bit of Yahweh and a little bit of Azazel, a little bit of Yahweh and a little bit of Baal, a little bit of Yahweh and a little bit of the gods of Egypt, none of that. It's all Yahweh or no Yahweh, right? He goes on to say, verse 8, Say to them, any Israelite or any immigrant living among them who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, the sacrifice of the Lord, that man will be cut off from his people. That's an act of idolatry. And God will not commit idolatry in Israel. Any Israelite or immigrant living among them who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from his people. For the life of the creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It's the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Therefore say to the Israelites, none of you may eat blood, nor any alien living among you eat blood. Any Israelite or alien living among you who hunts any animal or bird that may be eaten must drain the blood out and cover it with earth. 
because the life of every creature, and that word life is nefesh, it's the word soul, the Hebrew word soul. In the Hebrew Bible, humans have soul, animals have soul. This idea that animals don't have souls popped up much later in the theology. But in the Hebrew Bible, animals have soul because your soul is your life force. It's the immaterial part of you that does not die when your body dies. It's your life. It's your being. It's your nefesh. It's your soul. The word connected to throat and breath in Hebrew. And he's saying, because the life of all flesh, that word every creature is literally in Hebrew, all flesh. The life of all flesh is in its blood. That's why I've said to the Israelites, you must not eat the blood of any creature, because the life of every creature is in its blood. Anyone who eats it must be cut off. Blood was given its atonement. Blood is the life force in Israel. The blood of an animal is the only thing that can bring the whole unholy worshiper into the presence of a holy God. The blood of that innocent animal being shed instead of the sinner who deserves their blood to be shed because of their sinful rebellion. God has made a way for the life force of one to take the place of what would be the death of the other. This is laying the ground for the center of all Christian theology, which would come in the New Testament, where the blood of the one innocent in all of human history, the one innocent blood is the one thing that's able to cleanse and make a way for all people to come into relationship with God if they apply that blood to themselves in faith. So what God's saying in this object lesson to Israel is, I've got a purpose for blood, and it's not to be eaten. It's not a delicacy. It's not to absorb the life force so you can be empowered, which is what Israel's neighbors, a lot of them thought about eating blood, or even today in some places, you know, when you kill an animal, the natives or group, they'll, they'll drink the blood. That's the first thing you do because it gives you part of the essence of that animal or whatever. It's rank idolatry. I mean, it's total idolatry. And even if it's well-meaning idolatry, it's still idolatry. What God's saying is, no, 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 that's not what blood is going to be for. Not among my people. My people are going to be holy. And in Acts 15, when the, when the Jerusalem church first started realizing, hey, Gentiles are starting to come to faith. What do we do with Gentiles who come to faith? Do we make them keep all of the Torah, even though they're not Jews? What do we do? And the church came up with this list, and they said, this is, this is the bare minimum of what you're going to do as Gentiles. This is what you're going to refrain from, to commune with God's people. And one of the things that they said you have to do is avoid the eating of blood and, and of animals that have not had their blood drained out. They carried the Levitical Holiness Code into the New Testament with some of its aspects that were central. One of those is that object lesson teaching. Blood is for the atonement, not just this substance you can do what you want with. Blood is not um, inconsequential. It has meaning. It has significance. And God wants to preserve that among his people. And so we're going to say, we'll finish the chapter, the last verse. He says, And anyone, whether native-born or alien, who eats anything that's found dead or torn by wild animals, must wash his clothes and bathe with water, and he will be ceremonially unclean until evening, then he will be clean. But if he doesn't wash his clothes and bathe himself, he will be held responsible. Why? Because something found dead, like we saw in the passage about cleanliness and, and, and purity, death is the antithesis of God. So if you go and you eat something, like for, this is talking about what we call roadkill, uh, but if you're a scavenging society or if you're a herdsman and you come across an animal and it's just dead, that's a lot of meat you don't want to waste. So you eat it. What God's saying is that's fine, you can do that, but since it hadn't had its blood properly drained, it's not clean. And if you eat it, you're unclean. So you can't come back into the vicinity of the sanctuary that day 
and carry on your worship because you have come into contact with death and you have not done, you have not honored that death the way God intended, which was by pouring out the blood, giving it back to the ground from which it came, covering it with earth, and doing it as a thankfulness to God for providing it. So there's so much symbolism and theology wrapped up in just this one seemingly inconsequential chapter that you would normally skip over in a Bible study because nobody knows what it's saying and everybody's bored. You want to get to the good stuff. Um, but there's a lot in there if we go slow and we work our way through the history of God's people. Two minutes over. So get out of here. Go back to work. If you want some seconds, we've got it. Next week, crazy, dirty sex. Is that enough to get you back? I hope so. See you then. If you want some resources, come see me over here.